0: This morning, we are starting a new series called Relationship Restart, and I'm hopeful that in the next five weeks or so, we're going to learn some things that are going to help us have healthy relationships. How many of you, uh, you want healthy relationships in your life? Healthy relationships are a really important thing, a really good thing. Have you, have you noticed that in life, the things that bring us the most joy also have the power to bring us the most pain? The things that bring us the most joy also have the power to bring us the most pain, I think of this often with sports. I mean, I'm a big sports fan. I got lots of teams that I root for. And sometimes there's a lot of joy in rooting for teams, and sometimes there's a lot of pain in rooting for teams. If you're a Bills fan, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of of pain. And uh, every now and then, one of my teams will suffer a devastating loss, and I will literally talk to my wife and say, I don't even know, why do I do this to myself? Why do I watch sports? Why do I even care about this? And then next season starts and I'm back in, you know? They win a big game and they pull me right back in. So the things that cause us great joy can also cause us great pain. I I also think of pets, right? Pets can bring such joy into our lives. How many of you have a pet that brings joy into your life? We have two little hamsters in our house, neither of which bring any joy into my life. (laughs) But they bring joy into my daughter's lives. But I also know that someday, because hamsters don't live forever, just like all your pets, sorry to ruin your Sunday, don't live forever, someday there's going to be a lot of pain in my house over those little hamsters that barely get any attention. But there's gonna be a lot of tension when they, when they die. Uh, and so the things that bring us great joy can bring us great pain. How about food? Food, right? Food brings us great joy, but if you eat something bad, great pain, right? You know what I'm talking about. So I think it's also true of relationships. Think back through your life. What has brought you the greatest moments of joy in your life? It's probably relationships. Meaningful, life-giving, wonderful relationships. But on the other hand, what's also brought the most pain into your life? It's relationships. When they fall apart, when they don't go well, when things don't work out the way that you had hoped they would work out. You know, everyone in our world today is trying to figure this thing out. Everybody's trying to figure out relationships. People pay a lot of money to figure out relationships. This morning, I, I went on Amazon real quick and I just searched the phrase books on relationships. Anyone want to guess? Over 40,000 results. Over 40,000 results. Now, the next five weeks, we're not going to look at 40,000 books on relationships, thanks God. But we're going to look at one book. We're going to look at Scripture. And what does Scripture have to say about healthy relationships? And I realize that in this day and age, some people are like, well, what is the Bible? Why would we look to the Bible? It's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's not reliable. What I think we're going to learn is that Scripture actually offers us what I think is the most compelling, comprehensive, uh, consistent, and convincing explanation for why the world is the way it is, and gives us a lot of insight into who we are even today. So what we're going to do this morning in our time is we're going to look at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to learn three things from the very beginning of the Bible about relationships. We're going to learn, number one, why we need each other, why we need each other. Number two, why we hurt each other. And number three, why we can hope for better, okay? Why we need each other, why we hurt each other, and why we can hope for better. Genesis 126, God says this, let us make man or let us make human in our image after our likeness. In verse 27 it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's two very important things that you can learn right off the bat in Genesis 1:26 and 27. You've been created in the image of God, but the image of God is not someone who's by himself. Because he says, Let us make humans in our image that's the third person right God didn't say I'm going to make humankind in my image he said let us make humankind in our image he's having a conversation who is he having a conversation with who is this dialogue happening with what are we learning about how we were created and what we learn here is what we call the doctrine of the trinity that there is one God in three persons that there is God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit and this makes up the Godhead Here's some important truths in case you're confused about the Trinity. By the way, that's the name of the church you're in right now, so it's a good thing to know something about. Here's some three truths, three truths that make up the doctrine of the Trinity. First is this, that God is three distinct persons with distinct roles. It's not one God who shows up in three different ways. It's not like me. Sometimes I show up as a father to my daughters. Sometimes I show up as a son to my mom and sometimes I show up as a husband to my wife, don't think of the Trinity that way. It's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit who shows up at different times in different places as needed. There are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and none of them is the other. But each of them is fully God, and there is one God. So three in one. Now, listen, I get it. If this is new to you, or even if it's not new to you, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Our finite minds cannot wrap ourselves around this idea of the Trinity. One God, I can understand. Three gods, okay. But three in one, how does that work? And one of the things I always say to people when they struggle with the Trinity is is simply, who would have made this up? Like, who makes this thing up? Who sits around and goes, oh, this will be popular. Uh, Three, one God, three. We only believe this because this is what scripture teaches us. And the Trinity is a mystery. And if you're wrestling with the Trinity this morning, you're in good company because everybody always has. And the early church fathers and mothers, they wrestled with the Trinity. And what they compared it to was a dance that you would see at a Greek wedding called a perichuris. And simply, this dance was a dance that just didn't involve two people, but it was three people, four people, five people. And this style of dancing was a type of dancing where they would weave back and forth and amongst each other, maybe sort of like line dancing. I don't know. I'm not a country music person, so I've never gone line dancing, but that's kind of what I envision it to be. And one of the commentators says that they go in circles, and they weave in and out in this beautiful pattern of motion, and they start going faster and faster, and they're staying in this perfect rhythm and in sync with each other. And then here's what it says. Eventually... They're dancing so quick, quickly, yet so effortlessly, that as you look at them, it all just becomes a blur. And their individual identities are part of a larger dance. And the early church fathers and mothers, they would look at those dances and they would say, this is what the Trinity is like. It's a harmonious set of relationships in which there is mutual giving and receiving. That relationship is called love, and that's what the Trinity is all about. It's the perichoresis. This is the dance of love. And Tim Keller, as he comments on this idea of the Trinity as a dance, he says, each of the divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they center upon the other. They're not trying to pull attention to themselves. None demands that the other revolve around him. Instead, each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love and delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the other. And it creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Now, what does this have to do with why we need each other? Because God has always existed eternally in relationship. He is a relational God. And because we have been created in the image of a relational God, we are relational people. We can't get around it. We need other people in our lives. In in Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, we have really two creation accounts in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, In Genesis 1, this creation account, uh, what we see is that on the five days of creation, as it's presented in Genesis chapter 1, after each day, God looks at it and he says he saw it was what? It was good. And then on the sixth day, the day that he creates humans in his own image, he says he saw it was very good. Everything is good, right? Because sin hasn't entered the world yet. Nothing has affected it yet. But in chapter 2, we realize that God says something is not good. For the first time, God speaks up and says something is not good. Let's read this together. Genesis chapter chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to every beast of the field. But still for Adam, there was not a helper found for him. So there's nobody there to, that fits with him. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then man said, Or Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And look at this last verse, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Here's what I want you to notice. Genesis chapter 2 comes before Genesis chapter 3. Right? Right? It's pretty obvious. Two before three, those are the insights you pay me for, right? Chapter two comes before chapter three. And in chapter three, we see the fall. We're going to look at it in just a moment, where sin enters the world. Genesis chapter two is before the fall. And so what we have to notice here is that Adam, listen, Adam is lonely before there's any sin in the world. So sometimes we think, well, loneliness or our need for other people is because we're broken. No, the, the, there's some dysfunction in the way we need each other, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But the actual need for one another is not because of sin. It's because we were created in the image of a relational, giving, loving, caring God. Another way of thinking about this is you were created to be invited into that dance, the dance of the Trinity. And until you're in that dance... You're just not going to be fulfilled. You're not going to be satisfied. Think about how much we need each other. Listen, we can't even have an enjoyable experience without wanting to share it with people, can we? Every time I go to a restaurant and a good plate of food comes out, before I ever take a bite of it, I take a picture of it. And I put it up on my social media account. Why? Because I, I want to share. I'm wired to share things with people. You know, whenever we're looking at something beautiful, most of the time we're, we're thinking about who, who we wish was there to see it with us because we're so wired to share things, and my girls, whenever they want to, when we're out together with my daughters, and something happens, they will argue with each other about who gets to tell mom about what happened, because they just so love to share their experiences, we're wired this way, we can't even have an aesthetic experience without wanting to share it, even things that are gross, we want to share with each other, right, you know that, someone's like, oh, this is disgusting, smell it, like, why, why would I do that? Because we're, we need each other and we're wired for this. And what all this means, by the way, is that you and I, as those who have been created to bear God's image, and that does make us distinct, by the way, in creation. Only humankind was created to bear God's image. As those who were created to bear, bear God's image, you and I cannot rightly or correctly or fully bear his image without filling our lives with relationships. Meaningful relationships, deep relationships, profound relationships. And think about Jesus. So, so Jesus comes to earth as what? As the exact, according to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, as the exact representation of the nature of God. What does that mean? It means that we don't bear God's image well, but Jesus, bare, Jesus bore God's image perfectly in our place. That's part of the good news of the gospel. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the exact nature of God in the way that he lived. And what, what, what about Jesus? Was he a loner? Did he hate being around people? Was he always doing his own thing? The only time we see him really alone is two times. When he, whenever he would go to pray in the morning, he would go alone, and then on the cross. But every other moment of his life, he's with people. He's at parties. Isn't that cool? Jesus liked to party. He went to wedding parties. He went to dinner parties. He was a part of those things. He had relationships. Jesus pulled people close. He had uh, 12 men who followed with him all the time, three who were closer, and then even a bigger circle of people who, who were his disciples. Jesus was always in relationship. And by the way, I love this about Jesus. He had relationships with all different types of people, all different types of people, And if we're gonna bear God's image rightly, I think what this means is that we have to fill our lives not just with relationships, but with, listen, with relationships with all kinds of people, all kinds of people. Think for a second about who you have relationship with. Are they all basically the same person? Do they all basically think the same, believe the same, vote the same, live the same, look the same, have the same socioeconomic standing as you? Be careful that you're not just filling your life with relationships of people who look like you and think like you, because then I think we miss the opportunity to really bear God's image in a way that is the way he intends us to do so, bearing God's image. Now, I want us to notice one thing before we move on to our second point, and it's this. The way Adam and Eve related to each other before the fall is so different than the way you and I can relate to each other now. Did you notice in verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This idea of nakedness before the fall, we're gonna see like this is a big theme and this actually gives us a lot of insight. They're, not, they're, not, they're naked and they're not ashamed and we're gonna learn in the next chapter, not only are they not ashamed of their nakedness, they're not even really aware of their nakedness. That's a crazy thought for us now on this side of the fall because if you're naked in public, it's the only thing you're aware of, right? I mean. The idea that someone could be naked and not aware. You know, we've all had that terrifying dream where we walk into school or work and we forgot to put our clothes on, right? Just me? We've all had that dream. If you go to a sporting event and a streaker runs out on the field, you know, 100,000 fans that were thinking about 100,000 different things are now all focused on one person, right? Like, naked in public is not normative. And so the idea that you can be unashamed and unaware That's so radical, that doesn't doesn't really compute with us. How is this possible? And I think the only way that it's possible is that that they were naked and unashamed and unaware is that there was something or somebody else that had so completely and totally captured their attention that they were not self-absorbed the way that you and I are, that they weren't selfish, that they weren't thinking about themselves because there was something outside of them that had so captured their attention. The only thing I can compare it to is like when I'm like elbows deep in a good meal, and I'm just like enjoying that food and my heart is just so captured by what I'm eating and I don't realize that I'm just splattering it like a, like a painting all across my shirt. You ever walk away from a table of pasta and all of a sudden you're like, what? Huh? Who did this to me, right? That's the only thing I can think of is because I'm so captured and focused on what's there, I don't realize what's here. And so Adam and Eve are so fully and completely satisfied in their unhindered, unbroken relationship with God, they're so glad to be a part of the dance that they don't even realize They're just not even self-aware in a way that we are. So they needed each other, but they needed each other in a way that's completely unfamiliar to the way that you and I need each other now. Well, how? Let's get to our second point. So our first point is why we need each other. Our second point this morning is why we hurt each other. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall and the serpent comes and the serpent tempts Eve. Let's pick up this story in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food. This was the one tree in the garden that they were not supposed to eat from, the one tree. That was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was also to, to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, we don't know if it was an apple. Some people think it's an apple. I don't know why people think it's an apple. It doesn't say that here. Took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some, of her hus- some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then, look at what happens as soon as sin enters the world. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew They were naked. Like, that's the first thing that the author of Genesis decides to record. After sin enters the world, the first thing is that they knew they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loincloths. They immediately tried to cover up the things that were different about themselves. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was the practice, that God would come and walk with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. A lot of hiding, a lot of hiding going on. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? By the way, when God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He knew. He wanted them to consider where they were at. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is Adam. Verse 11, God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's pretty impressive here from Adam. In one sentence, he blames two people. <laughs> God, it's the woman you gave me, right? I didn't ask for her. I was, I was naming animals. I was fine. You gave her to me. This is your fault, God, and she did something. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman blames someone else. The, w- the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And listen, there's a lot of questions about this exact story. We're not gonna go into it this morning, but I just want us to notice a couple of things. Into a perfect world, marked by perfect relationships, comes two things that we've never gotten rid of this many years ago. Shame and blame. Shame and blame. All of a sudden, for the first time, they feel shame about who they are. There's something wrong about me. There's something inadequate about me. And let's be honest, we've never gotten rid of that. We all struggle with that feeling. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. If people really knew me, they wouldn't be my friend. They wouldn't accept me. People knew the thoughts I had. People knew the struggles I had. And so we, what do we do? We do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We hide. As soon as they recognized they were naked and they saw that they were different from each other in some ways, they go to the fig tree, they take off some leaves and they try to put together some clothes and they try to cover their nakedness. And then they try to hide themselves from God. And so we don't, when we, when we, we have our shame, but then we also have blame. As soon as we feel shameful about something, what do we do? We start blaming someone about how we feel. Maybe you blame yourself about how much shame you feel. Maybe you blame your parents. Maybe you blame your upbringing. Maybe you blame your circumstances. Maybe you blame other people. But shame and blame, and both of these feelings of shame and the need to blame someone else, they're both rooted in this nakedness, this awareness, this sense of inadequacy and worthlessness. And here's what we do to deal with this shame is we try to pull people close to us to cover our nakedness. And once we realize that they can't do it, we push them away and we blame them for their inability to cover our nakedness and take our shame away. So this is the vicious cycle. We find a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new person, a new job, a new whatever, and we say, are you going to be the one that's gonna cover my nakedness, cover my shame, make me feel okay? And we set our hearts on them, and we, and, we, and we adore them, and we worship them, and they become the ultimate person in our life. But then once we realize they can't do it for us because they're just as broken and frail as we are, we start to blame them, and we push them away. And this is why we hurt each other, because we're in this constant Uh, this constant cycle of pulling people close to cover our shame, but then pushing people away and blame when we realize that they can't do it. And what ends up happening is we either find people to be, we either look at people and say they're the ultimate, we worship them, we adore them, we place our hopes and dreams in them, we look at them like Jerry Maguire, we say, you complete me, right? And we have this sort of dream, or we see them as useful. Useful to get what we really want, to cover our shame. And as soon as they can't, we get very angry. And it is what happens. At the beginning, we see that relationship was designed by God so that we could complement each other, serve each other, help each other, defer to one another. But instead of trying to complement each other, what do we try to do? I already said it. We try to complete each other. We think, yeah, I'm, I'm broken. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. But if I had you, then I would be. Then, then life would make sense and life would be worth living. And what we do is put a very unfair burden on somebody else who can't do that we We're addressing the shame issue of we are not enough. And by the way, it's not just romantic relationships, is it? It can be friendships. Parents, it can be your kids. You can look at your kids and go, hey, I didn't get it right, but you're going to get it right, and that's how my life is going to be good right? We start to put that pressure on. Like, I feel it. Like, my girls are in sports now. My, I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. My 11-year-old plays soccer. I was coaching her yesterday. Rough loss, first loss of the year. Kind of a bummer. But we, we're, she's, she's playing soccer. She's playing lacrosse. My 8-year-old's playing lacrosse. And one of the things I've noticed in my own heart is that because I don't always feel like I'm a winner, and I don't always feel like I'm good enough, and I have the shame of maybe not always getting it right, I want to win in sports. I want to win because winning is how I know that I'm okay, But now it's worse because I'm a dad and now I want to win through my daughters. And when they're out there, it's not just them trying to win, it's me trying to win through them. And what I find is that when they struggle and when they lose and they're not as good at the sport as I hoped they would be, now all of a sudden I feel this, almost this blame, like why don't you work harder? Why don't you care about this as much as I care about it? And well, here's what actually will start to happen, parents. You actually start to distance yourself from your own children because they're not giving to you what you thought that they could or should. You hold them at arm's length because you're like, you're not really helping me feel better about myself right now. And it's a really dangerous thing that we do. And this is how we hurt each other. And we end up using each other to get what we really want out of it. You know, this past week was my birthday, just like today's, today's Melissa's birthday, but my birthday was, was Friday. I turned 41 years old, so nothing cool happens on your 40, 41st birthday. Um, But my girls wanted to get me presents, and so they went out with Aaron, uh, my wife, to get some presents. My girls know me so well. My two oldest girls, like one of them bought me like a jar of pickles because she knows I love pickles. I mean, it's mostly all food they got me, so you can tell they know me really well. They bought me a jar of pickles. One of my daughters bought me some cans of tuna, which I think was a hint about a diet or something. Uh, Another daughter bought me some Altoids, which I think might have been another hint. And so, you know, they're getting me all this stuff. And then Madeline, my five-year-old, she's like, I want to get daddy I want to get daddy an LOL boy doll. Now, if you don't have young kids, you don't know what this is, but LOL dolls are these little toys that kids are obsessed about right now, especially Madeline. And so Aaron takes her to Walmart to get an LOL boy doll, but they're all sold out of LOL boy dolls. Very hard to get. If you find any, buy them and put them on eBay. You're going to be rich at Christmas. And so LOL boy dolls is not there. And so instead, Maddie starts crying, getting upset. So, so Aaron says, well, just buy daddy an LOL LOL girl doll. So she buys this girl doll for me, and I come home, and she's like, Daddy, look what I got you for your birthday. It's already out of the package. She's already got its shoes on it. That's the best part. She's already done all that. She's already playing with it, and she's like, look what I got for you on your birthday. And I'm thinking, you used my birthday to get yourself. She's very brilliant. She's very smart. You used my birthday to get yourself another LOL doll, and she's got a lot of them, so don't feel bad for her. She's got too many of them. That's kind of a humorous example, but in more serious ways, we use other people to get what we really want out of it. And as soon as we've gotten everything we want out of it, or as soon as we realize we can't get out of it what we had hoped we would get out of it, then we begin to push them away. So it's a cycle, pulling them close to cover our shame and our nakedness, pushing them away with blame when we realize that they can't, and we hurt each other. Now, what hope do we have? And this is the last point this morning, why we can hope for better. Genesis chapter 3, the end of this story, it says this, verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. The nakedness that they were unaware of and unashamed of now became the nakedness that defined them. And they couldn't cover themselves. They tried. You know, you don't have to be a botanist to know that once you pull leaves off of trees, they're not going to live forever. They're not going to last. Nobody's going to be able to cover their nakedness with leaves. But that was all Adam and Eve could get their hands on. That's all they could do. And God comes along and he does something for them. He provides a covering for them. He covers their nakedness. In order for him to cover their nakedness, there had to be the shedding of blood. An animal had to die so they could have skins to cover their. Na- they had tried to cover themselves, but God wanted to give them a better covering, a better covering. And it's this profound, beautiful, moving foreshadowing of the sacrificial system, but also of the work of the cross, of what Jesus came to do, that Jesus came so that His blood would be shed, and in the shedding of His blood, He provides for you and for me. Listen, He provides for us. Listen, a better covering. A better covering. I don't know what you try to cover your nakedness with. Your sense of inadequacy. That you're not good enough. That nobody really accepts you. Some of you try to cover it with uh, your career, with money, with accomplishment, with power, with respect, with relationships. But what the scripture reveals to us is there's a better covering. There's a sure covering because all your efforts to cover yourself with those things, you know what you're doing. You're just you're just taping fig leaves together, thinking it'll work. And just like fig leaves can't cover the physical nakedness, your efforts cannot cover your spiritual nakedness, your sense of, it. and listen, if you think that you don't measure up this way, wait till you see God. Wait till you see his holiness. Wait till you see who, who he is. Talk about not measuring up. Talk about inadequate. Talk about shame. But what hope do we have? That there's a covering, that there's a better covering. In Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But because Jesus Christ walked to the cross and allowed his blood to be shed for you and for me, there is the forgiveness of sins. There's a covering over your sins. That shame, that feeling that you're not enough, you don't have to carry that because Jesus can cover you with his righteousness, with his perfect work, with his performance on your behalf because you didn't bear God's image well, but Jesus bore God's image perfectly in your place. And that's the art of the gospel. And so we have the covering that we need. And one of Jesus' closest followers, his name was Peter, years after Jesus walked to the cross and died, and Peter was was a big part of this story. And Peter knew that there was shame in his life because Peter denied Jesus three times the day that Jesus died. Peter thought, "This, this is it for me. It's done. I've failed at the biggest moment of my life. Imagine you at the biggest moment of your life falling on your face, and everybody knew. This was Peter. But Jesus restored Peter and said, there's a way back. It's by trusting in me. 40, 50 years later, this man, Peter, wrote these words. He said, hey, guys, you know it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way you used to live your lives. Here's what he's saying. Guys, you know you can't cover yourself with that stuff. Your houses, your boats, your friends, your accomplishments, your religiosity, your morality. You know you can't cover yourself with that, right? Then he says this but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This morning, here's why we have hope for better, because there's a better covering. If Jesus didn't provide a covering for us, we would have no hope to have healthy relationships. We would use each other, we would worship people, we would take advantage of people, but there's a better way. See, when we see Jesus covering us, our nakedness and our shame, here's what it does, and I'll finish. It frees us from the cycle of either using other people or worshiping other people. Using people to get what we want or seeing people as ultimate. Jesus meets our needs. He allowed himself to be used in our place. And now we see that he's the ultimate. He's worthy of our love. And here's what it does for us. Listen, it allows us to serve others selflessly. It allows us to serve not to be seen. We don't have to be noticed. Some of you come to this church during the week and you clean. No one knows that you do that. But because Jesus is your covering, you don't need to be known. You don't need to be seen. Some of you this morning are serving right now in the nursery. Most of us don't know you're there unless we dropped our kids off. But you're serving. Why? Because you don't need to be seen. You're not using these things. You're just serving God. It allows us to love others who hurt us. It allows us to pray for those who persecute us. It allows us to see people the way that God sees them. And it gives us hope for something so much better. And let me just finish with this thought, and we'll pray. One of the most powerful evangelistic tools is a loving community of people. How are we going to reach clay? How are we going to fill the seats in the 9 a.m. service? How are we going to fill the seats in the 11 a.m. service? How are we going to reach your family, your friends, your neighbors? There's lots of ways that God may use, might use, but one of the most powerful things God's going to use is that if we are a people who lay our lives down for each other. Because when people see a community of people who love each other despite their differences and lay their lives down for each other, you know what they'll say? I want to get in on that. I don't want to be on the outside of that. I want to be on the inside of that. And Jesus himself said that the way that the world is going to know that we belong to him and that we're his people is the way we love each other, the way we serve each other, the way we wash each other's feet, the way we invite each other into our homes, the way we inconvenience ourselves to do life together, the way that we lay our lives down for each other like Jesus. As Jesus laid down his life, he prayed a prayer that you can only pray if you have the grace of God in your life. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Why do we need each other? Because we're the image bearers of a relational God. Why do we hurt each other? Shame, blame, sin. Why is there hope for something better? Because of Jesus. Let's pray together this morning.